You're listening to the Learning While Working podcast from Sprout Labs. Sprout Labs builds digital learning platforms that enable enterprises to author, deliver and measure high-impact digital learning ecosystems. Welcome to our next podcast in our series on AI and L&D. I'm Robin Pettit, the founder of Sprout Labs and the host of the Learning While Working podcast. To go along with this podcast series, there's an ebook as well that includes edited transcriptions of all the interviews, and it includes an introduction to what is AI, what is machine learning, and some of the jargon that gets talked about in the interviews as well. That ebook is in the resources section of the Sprout Labs website. The higher education sector has been using complicated learning analytics and specifically machine learning for some time, mostly to predict if students are at risk of dropping out of their programs. In this series, I really wanted to include an interview from someone who'd been involved in some of this higher education work, partly to see what workplace L&D could learn from it. Mark Sharkley is one of the leaders in this area. It was great to be reminded by Mark in this interview that learning is a complex area and there's so many factors at play, and because of this, it's not a simple area for the application of machine learning. During this interview, Mark and I also briefly talk about privacy issues with analytics. As workplaces start to adopt more data-driven approaches to learning, there's a lot we can learn from the work that's already been done in higher education, including how privacy issues have, can be approached. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you. Very happy to be here. I appreciate the invitation. So, Mike, you come from a really rich higher education background. What are some of the trends you're seeing in higher ed and learning analytics at the moment? Well, it's a really interesting and creative space, and I'm very happy to be part of it. The biggest trend that I look at has to do with impact and what kind of impact data and analytics have in higher ed. And the best way to illustrate this is I like to look at comparable industries. So where has data and analytics made a big impact? You look at industries like the financial industry. Um, So they've been doing quantitative stock market analysis for 60 plus years. You look at manufacturing where data-driven quality and predictions have been in play for a long time. Uh, Even more recently, e-commerce. There's a lot of uh, positive data and analytics work there. Then you look at industries where it hasn't taken as well. And I point to education and healthcare as probably two industries where it really hasn't fulfilled the promises that it ought to have. And the reason, if you look at the differences there, it's to me, it's patently obvious about the difference. In those industries where data is working, in e-commerce, in manufacturing, in finance, um, you have very quantifiable, measurable outcomes. I buy a stock for a dollar, I sell it for a dollar fifty, I've made a profit on it. Uh, manufacturing, number of units, throughput, cycle times, defect rates, e-commerce. People always talk about, oh, we'll, we'll do this like Amazon, where you it says other people like you also bought this thing. Well, there's a buy button in Amazon. People click it and they buy something. If you look at education, there's no buy button. There's no point at which I now click a button and say, hey, I now know how to add fractions. Healthcare, there's no I'm cured button. Well, some things there are, right, and some simple things, but a lot of things, it's symptoms coming and going and things receding. And so because you don't have such a quantitative outcome like you do in other industries, I don't think education has lived up to what it can accomplish with data analytics 
And it certainly hasn't lived up to what many of the hype artists in the industry have claimed it can do. Yeah, it seems that sometimes the, think of it almost as the imports, the, the learning experiences uh, don't always have a binary correlation to the outcome. And there's a whole lot of complicated factors involved. So this could digress for a moment into the healthcare um, area. I had a friend who had a PhD in plant genetics and then she decided to retrain as a medical practitioner. And within two or three um, months of her training, she sat there and went, oh, I thought this was a science. And there was a whole, <laughs> whole lot of things that she sat there and went, the, the medicine had a whole lot of rules of thumb. It, it, they, there's things that work, and they know it works, but they haven't got the actual research to prove it. And she was really shocked coming from a science, pure research science background. And, and what you bring another good point into play, which is mission criticality. So let's go back to my Amazon example. Um, if I make a mistake where I sit, you're looking for ceiling fans and I suggest to you a power drill, how mission critical is that mistake? Not very. If I'm in healthcare education and I suggest something that's incorrect, it could be potentially bad, right? Suggesting someone takes a different course or takes a different pill. And so mission criticality has a huge role. Uh, the best example of that, I live in Phoenix, Arizona in the U.S., and we had an incident about three or four months ago with driverless cars, and a company hit and killed a pedestrian. And as they dug further into the reasoning of what happened, the car picked up the pedestrian in plenty of time. It was the software determining whether it was something it needed to stop for or not. And it, cho it, it followed its rules and said, no, I'm not going to stop. That's something I can keep going with, like a bush or a plastic bag. And the worst case scenario happened. So mission criticality has a huge effect, which is why education takes a bit more. Yeah, it's sort of that sense that, it, it, and, that and that's a really lovely example of the, the, the hype curve over-promising and, and the technology not quite being there yet. That's a nice way of thinking about it. Yeah, the, the, the Gartner hype cycle um, is a bit of a truism. And um, I did a blog post on this uh, about a year or two ago and talked about the hype cycle with analytics and higher education. And I tend to be an optimist, um, so I always put a positive spin on things. And obviously, the, the hype cycle is um, a negative thing. And by the hype cycle, I'm saying someone says, um, oh, we have this machine learning algorithm that could predict X, Y, and Z, and will improve retention at your institution by 15 percentage points. And there's a lot of hype in there. There's a lot of hyperbole. So it's bad because what happens is people buy into it. They believe it at face value. And then when the results come in or the lack of results happen, they're very much let down. And they say, oh, this analytics thing is a bunch of hogwash and um, it doesn't give us the results we want. But being an optimist, the good part about it is I believe that we have to pass through this hype cycle in order to get to the real stuff. So the fact that we're through it and that people are starting to realize, hey, don't believe everything that's claimed. Start smaller. Bite off a smaller project that can show some results. It may not change the world, but you can show the impact, and that way we'll take steps towards the outcome as opposed to believing that we'll get it all in six months.
And the example you just used of the um, retention is a really common one that's in, used in high, higher education. I'm really interested to hear about, so you're sort of seeing they're saying that that's not actually quite, quite often the reality of what's being delivered with the technology? Uh, yeah, there's an easy reason for that is because it's not the technology that makes the difference. It's the intervention. It's the human part. So if you break down a, a project of predicting at-risk students, right? So there's your, your core retention use case. I take data about my students. I run it through a predictive model. The model says, of your 1,000 students, here are the 87 who are most at risk. You should reach out to them. So that's what the technology does. The technology in most cases doesn't do the reaching out, doesn't do the intervention. And that's where, that, you know, as we say, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where everything happens. It's the intervention. It's reaching out to someone. It's who reaches out. Is it the faculty member? Is it a advisor? Do you send a message to the student his or herself? What's the expected treatment? Are they going to get tutoring? Are they going to get a loan? Are they going to drop a class and take another one? There's a lot of different paths to take. And what happens, and especially by definition, machine learning isn't causal. And by that, I mean a machine, the, the algorithm might tell you that these 87 students are at risk, but it's not going to tell you why they're at risk. Uh, half of those students might be at risk because they don't get the subject matter. They're struggling in the economics course and they don't get the material. The other half might be at risk because their child is sick or they're traveling with work or a financial aid check didn't come through and they can't pay their tuition or a paycheck didn't come through and they can't pay their rent. That's what has to be treated. So identifying at risk is good, uh, but the reason that the machine can't solve everything is because the machine can't have that interaction and intervention with the student. So many layers to that particular thing, Mike, as well. Because sometimes I think about machine learning and bringing out what actually it means to be human. It's not just about finding patterns in, in data and seeing patterns to be human, but it's about then having an empathetic understanding with, well, what do people need? How do I, how do I help someone through it? So you're talk, almost talking about that sort of sense, the intervention by an individual faculty mem member needs to be personalised, but it's so different as well in so many situations. Yeah, I mean, the... the term I the phrase I always use is data complements the human decision making process that doesn't replace data can enhance it so in my case of a thousand students and here are the 87 who are at risk if that was left up to the human the human might say well I'm just going to call all thousand students and then they take a few weeks to cycle through them or they might say I'm going to take the 500 students who have the lowest grades in class and I'll filter my list that way. There's a lot of value in saying, you know what, I'm gonna give you the 87 students who I think are most at risk and would most benefit from your help today. I don't wanna underestimate the value of that because from a operational standpoint, that can be a huge thing. I've worked at and worked with and collaborated with many large universities in the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of students. So I'm always thinking about scale. So to be able to identify those students without having to cycle through the whole list is tremendous. But that's just identifying. That's not intervening and treating. So when I say data complements the human decision-making process, it can make the process more efficient. It could help, 
but it's not going to solve or obviate the human need. This is interesting, and this is partly the, probably the maturity bit around machine learning in these sorts of more nebulous areas. It's about the sort of diagnosing, but then also figuring out what the prescription is, is right. So we're working with a client who does work in healthcare and then works in healthcare education, and she's actually did a whole lot of research on remediation for doctors that were struggling in training. But what's really fascinating is she developed a whole very complicated mental model in her brain when she was able to have a conversation with someone who had failed a couple of her, their, their exams to be able to diagnose what their real problem was. And it was a holistic thing, like what you're talking about. It wasn't always about their performance in the exam or um, sometimes about the sort of patients that they saw, their cultural background, their family situation. There was just so many factors. Yeah, absolutely. Bringing into that. We have tried to build a study and a decision tree um, neural network app to help with that. <laughs> and it's still a little bit experimental, but it's interesting because essentially that's that second part of you've got a problem, how do you actually then have the technology help you loop back across that as well and it's also a bit of me that's also wondering whether or not it is actually just easier to have a human intervention so there was an article about a year or so ago about a large online class at a technical school it was at georgia tech in the united states and the professor worked with a company to build basically a, a ai chatbot as we would call it these days and the article was oh these students got were so happy and they got help and some of them didn't even know it was a chatbot. They thought it was a, a, a teaching assistant assigned to the class. But there was a little line buried in the article. And the line buried in the article said, the instructor has taught this class for 10 years. And the same class for 10 years. So you mentioned the mental model. He knew all of the pitfalls that students hit in this class. So he was able to seed the chatbot with all of these different scenarios because he knew what could go wrong. Now, that's wonderful, and that's a good testament to dedication and understanding your art, but what that isn't is scalable. That worked for the one course that he taught for 10 years. The brass ring in higher ed technology is scalability. You wanna be able to do this for one student, 10 students, 100 students, or 10,000 students, and a lot of the stuff can't really be scaled. The, the learning part of machine learning may work in one discipline, but not in another. So more often than not, when you see these examples of things that are working and using technology in that fashion, there's a little bit of a, yeah, but you know, behind the scenes, there's a reason why it worked and it may not work for everybody the same way. Yeah. If he's been teaching that 10 years and he's only doing it one semester, each lecture he's maybe only actually done 10 times. It's actually one of those things I've heard academics talk about quite often, that they might only get to do one bit of content once a year, and then they can't, don't have the chance to be able to refine that into another year. And it's actually one of the frustrating things about the, the area is the cycles are sometimes so long to, for improvement of what they, they're actually doing. Um, Absolutely. It's interesting. Have you actually seen any really great results? from machine learning approaches in higher ed where you think that's actually worked really well? Yeah, so there are cases where it has worked. Um, and 
the what you usually see, and I looked at some work that I had done with my previous company doing machine learning models around student risk and peers and competitors have done. And what you find are very real, but moderate or modest results. So retention is something that's always done. So if I have a thousand students and 900 students come back, then I've got a a 90% retention rate. And so when you look at uh, doing these interventions, these models around student risk, what I've found and seen is if you are not doing any intervention, never mind technology and machine learning, um, right? You might have advisors and you know with office hours. If you have any sort of pervasive model for supporting students, and now you tack machine learning on top of that, you might see a couple of percentage points. You might see your retention improve by one or two percentage points. If you weren't doing anything, and now you use machine learning data techniques, plus you add on this new advising student success folks to do the intervention, you might see five or six percentage point improvement. Those aren't small numbers. I was at a university where uh, 1% translated to $9 million a year in in benefits. Um, And not only is the school benefiting, the student is benefiting because they're getting assistance. So I don't want to minimize those numbers. But the problem is, is they don't always sound sexy. No one's going to spend a lot of money on a tool that's going to get them 1% improvement. doesn't come off well. So you sort of have this hype that leads into it. But to answer the question, yes, um, there are institutions I've worked with and I've seen that have done these initiatives, done them well, and have seen improvements in things like retention rate. Yeah, and that's that scale factor, but also this thing that you're talking about as well, the, the integrated approach around the whole diagnostic and intervention. Yeah, and, and what you find is the people say, well, why does one school succeed and not another? One of the um, most common hallmarks I see is a positive data culture. Um, so the institution, usually from top down, usually it's a, a president or a provost, he or she isn't just buying into the next shiny thing. They understand data and they understand the benefit. So you will see things like reports and quantitative readouts at staff meetings. And when people talk about problems, they'll say, well, get me the data. Show me, you know, is this a problem or or not? Um, And when you see those kinds of characteristics of leaders, that tends to correlate better with successful projects. Yeah, in workplaces we're finding what I call data-driven organisations and I can soon hunt them out. It's sort of when we start to talk about measurement and logging of things, people automatically go to a whole, can we get it into our other data systems and our other BI systems because we don't want it off in the learning area. We want to bring it into our whole data system. And that's because they've got this culture you're talking about of data, data-driven decisions. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of times when I've talked to people about the possibilities of predictive performance and predictive technologies, people have actually sort of done a a little bit of a whole, oh, that's sounding very big brother. And this sort of thing of actually having technology possibly watching people's behaviour and performance all the time does bring up a whole lot of concerns around privacy for people. In the higher ed sector, Mike, how have you seen some of that sort of play out and some of the decisions around that? It's absolutely a topic. And so we talk about 
privacy. I mean, privacy in, in higher ed has been a, a topic even before this push on data and machine learning. What's happened with GDPR impacts what's going on. Going back to mission critical, we talk about the ethics of knowing. So if I do that predictive model and it says, here are the 87 students who are most at risk, if I think those 86, 87 students aren't going to pass the class, do I have an obligation to take them out of that class? It's a bit of an interesting ethical question. So the the ethics and privacy are absolutely in play. And I'm happy to be in an industry in higher education um, where it's not overlooked. Every once in a while you get issues and data set problems. And But for the most part, folks are very respectful of privacy. Personally, I, I want to balance. You know, as someone who's taught and has taken classes and has children who take classes, um, I'm very respectful of privacy and the agency, the who is looking at it and what are they going to do with it. So I'm fine with the school looking at the student's data. The student is at the school and they've given some agency to that school to be able to use the data to help them. Very different from selling it to third parties or doing other information. So the balance I want is to respect that agency relationship, that, that the school can look at data as long as it's for the benefit of the student. But what I don't want is things locked down so tight that it stifles innovation. So there is definitely worry. Uh, one of the biggest things we say is opt-in versus opt-out. So um, I've heard people say, oh, if you're going to use a student's data to do predictive models in that, you need them all to not just be able to opt out of it, which someone can, but you've got to get them to opt in first to, to use it. And anyone who deals with data knows if you've got 100% of your students and you ask them to opt in, you're going to get a single digit percent of them who will opt in to say, yes, you can use my data. That will stifle any machine learning approach because it needs a lot of data to work. So I go for this balance where absolutely the privacy is respected and as it should be, but not stifled so much that it hurts the technology and the ability to help students succeed. And there's a really powerful word that you're using in there, Mike, it's respect. And it's that sort of being respectful of people's individual privacy and what you can actually help them achieve. That's a really nice sort of point. The ethic dilemma you talked about of how do you help those people or what do you do about those people that are failing is fascinating. To just drill into it a moment, last time I was tutoring at, at a university, this particular university had a particular um, minimum attendance requirement to be able to essentially sit your final assessments. And there was a disagreement with one student on um, whether or not they'd attended enough to sit. Um, and the student failed um, based on performance. And it would have been easier for that student to actually have been told they weren't eligible to sit because of their attendance and to have actually gone along with that rather than giving the, the failure result for performance. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times dropping out, withdrawing is an, is an okay solution. And so, yeah, you've, you've got a lot of going back to mission criticality. Uh, but, you know, then you could look at things like that has a financial impact. A student may lose tuition. And so now you're making a decision that is impacting that person's wallet. Um, and that is not a small decision to make. That particular student was struggling at that particular moment as well. And yeah, it's just a really interesting set of dilemmas around how you deal with the individual 
level, but also at the, at the scale levels and higher education, it's just a different problem as well. So are you seeing the trend and the trends you like to see that people almost automatically get the data is collected automatically without needing to opt in, part of the condition of being part of a course? I think it should be. So, you know, if you are taking a class at a university, it shouldn't come as a surprise that someone is, has the ability to look at your data. And now when I say look at your data, this is sort of the biggest kind of misnomer, misconception. Um, I'm not looking at Jane Smith's data and when she logged in, right? We're looking in aggregate. Um, so when people say, look at my data, you know, no one is snooping trying to, you know, eavesdrop on you and what you are doing. Your data is an aggregate with other students' data, and we use models and correlations and statistical techniques to try and find meaning in those data. So that's where some of the breakdown happens. You know, the say we'll say yes, the the university you know is is looking at your data to help students succeed, and then they they get personal. Well, that's my data. Why are you looking? And in reality, your data is thrown into a pot with data with, with other students to try and make meaning out of it. But um, look, as a consumer myself, I understand. You know, whenever someone says they have access to my data, there is a concern, and that's good, right? We we as consumers, we should have that concern for ourselves. But I firmly believe that should be an understood part of the relationship. You are at this university, and so in using the tools, um, it's not like a corporate relationship, right? A corporate people say, "Oh my, how can you read my emails?" You know, and and you found out that I was looking for another job. Well, you work at a company; it's their email system. You should have no expectation of privacy around it. I think it's a little different with the university. We're not going to be reading emails, but to say that you sent 15 emails um, on this week and we look at that activity and see if it's indicative of, of the fact that you may or may not be successful in the class, absolutely, I'll look at that. So I can look at those metadata about what you did without looking at the content of what you did. Yeah, and the metadata, the, almost the behaviors. In another podcast, corporate learning person called Laurie Hoffman talked about it as being almost a digital body language and looking at that, that at a sort of global pattern level rather than the individual level level. Yeah. But it's very easy to cross that threshold. So there are universities that are taking um, GIS, so global information, geodata. And this is under the guise of, I want to see how active you are on campus. Are you using the library, using the student rec center? I understand that, but now you have my physical location and now you start to cross that threshold of i don't care how nice you say you're going to be you're tracking my geolocation and that's getting really personal so um, it's very easy to start crossing between metadata and something that is a lot more sensitive geolocation is interesting and it's actually one of the things i had personally have had um, issues with with being tracked by google whereas i don't mind anything online being being tracked it's actually the, the location it's interesting how the physicality changes some of our perceptions of things oh yeah you go to the google my maps page and you see uh, where you've been google can show you where you've been because you know i carry my phone around with me and has that and you're like wow it's a good thing i'm not doing anything illegal <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, hi, it's been 
working with machine learning for a bit longer than what corporate learning has, um, Mike, what do you think the big lessons that could be transferred from what's been happening in higher ed into corporate learning could be? Um, so it, the biggest thing is focusing on the outcome first. The what are you going to do with it? The so what? The what's the problem you're trying to solve? Uh, when I talk about machine learning, I actually take technology out of play. So I say, look, let's say we're talking about student risk and retention. Instead of machine learning, I have a crystal ball. So I am now a, a magic person with a crystal ball. And instead of a machine learning model that'll tell me these are the 87 students out of the 1,000 who are at risk, my crystal ball tells me the 87,000. And now I write those 87 students' names on a list. So now there's no more argument over what's your technique and how accurate is the model. It's a crystal ball. It's 100% accurate. The big question is, what are you going to do with that list of 87 names? Are you going to contact them, talk to them? Are you going to drop them out of classes? Who is going to take that action? Who is accountable and responsible for taking that action? What is the ultimate goal? Are you trying to get the student to pass a class, to graduate in four years, to get a job? So you can, realistically, you can take the technology off the table and focus on the intervention and outcomes. And the biggest learning from using data in higher ed for these purposes is if you haven't figured that part out first, what's your goal and what are you going to do with the results of the data, then you shouldn't be starting the data technology side of it because it's only going to confuse things more. And I think that lesson can 100% apply on the corporate side. Yeah, and that's a really nice sentiment and possibly a really great way to wrap up the podcast as well, Mike. Show notes will make sure you include the link to your website and also that link to that article you were talking about with the academic that was worked with the chatbot bot style technology. Absolutely. Well. Cool. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. Thank you. Take care, Robin. Thank you for listening to the Learning While Working podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a review. If you want to find out more about Sprout Labs, go to sproutlabs.com.au. We regularly run webinars and publish ebooks and guides about learning while working.